This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Timing is everything. Just as we're starting to grapple with the threat of the Omicron variant, Ottawa is relaxing restrictions at the border. As of today, vaccinated travelers won't need a PCR test to re-enter the country after to short trips of up to 72 hours. Meanwhile, there are calls to institute testing on arrival for all passengers. The good news, Ottawa is starting to enforce the rule that all plane and train passengers must be vaccinated. So, is the Trudeau government on it, or are they behind? And overseas, Barbados has become a republic after jettisoning the Queen as their head of state. We have polling that shows a slim majority of Canadians think we should do the same at least after Queen Elizabeth passes. What do you think? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free one 1- 866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome our crack strategy panel that we talk to every Tuesday. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, the former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Hello and welcome to you all. Hey there, everyone. Okay, so, um, you know, we we keep getting hit. You know, every time we think we're coming out of this, there's something new. So uh, is the government on it with this relaxed restriction, relaxed requirement for PCR tests coming off? But uh, they will be checking the vaccine passports. John? Well, you know, it, it's it's so frustrating, Libby, to all of us, you know, when we sort of have a, a sense that, that we're on the right side of this, and then uh, you hear this new variant, and of course, we, we heard it, and we got to give um, South Africa government a lot of, a lot of obviously, um, uh, kudos in a sense that, that they recognize it, and, and quite quite quickly were able to make it public for, for other nations uh, and around the world to be able to study it and, and get on it quickly, and I think that's half the battle. Uh, was that that opportunity for for the Canadian government scientists and and doctors to be able to get an early sense of it? So there's so some cases that are in Ontario now that are being that are being isolated. So that's that's at least a, a little bit of a silver lining on this. But it's just frustrating that that we're now seeing this happen. But to the Canadian government, I give them credit for jumping on this quickly. The, the challenge last time, or early on, or during the early parts of the pandemic last time, was that there was a huge delay between them shutting down travel between various countries, especially the ones that had a high number of, of cases that were being tested positive. This time around, they obviously jumped on it pretty quick. So I give I always give credit where credit's due, and I give them credit for that. I think that's an important one to stop. I think the, the challenge, though, is this. It's the consistency of the travel. You mentioned that there's, you know, the, the land transfer uh, and, and, and transportation back and forth is still lax. There's still some opportunities there. Uh, Heights are being stopped. There's got to be some level of consistency throughout the process because there are places that you can slip in unbeknownst and have this virus. And if we get to a point where this is getting to a, to a numbers higher than normal, then we're going to have to see things being restricted again. And nobody wants that. Yeah. Um, Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate why 72 hours is the is there for us. But if you go to the football game in Buffalo and you come back, the, the chances that you catch COVID could be there, but the chance, but your ability to actually measure it won't be possible. So it makes no sense to have it uh, your 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 uh, PCR test when you're traveling for a short period of time. It does make absolute sense, however, that you must be fully vaccinated. And that super mutation, the Omicron that was traveling through KLM, is shocking because there was a lot of people on those flights that were already infected. And those should have been monitored. Anybody traveling should be vaccinated. 
And, I mean, the federal government is doing it appropriately to ensure that that is the case. Um, and the PCRs are still in, in effect beyond the 72 hours, which also makes sense. But this is, this is different times. I mean, I don't know what the supermutation is going to do. I know it's, it's already here, it's somewhere in, in Canada as well as the United States. How fast it will spread, we have no idea. But it's, it's pretty scary stuff. Karen, I mean, you know, we just heard in Bob's news that actually uh, it may have been elsewhere before South Africa found it. Yeah, and so I, I think what's frustrating is context, and that we don't have enough context around this. Because we heard it's traveling and spreading quickly in uh, South Africa and nations around South Africa, but we also know that the vaccination rates in those areas are the lowest in the, na- are the, lowest in the globe. And so we still don't know what the impact is on vaccinated individuals and whether or not the vaccinations that we've received are going to be um, protect the, the public against this, this, this new variant. And so that, that's frustrating. What's also frustrating is that the World Health Organization comes out and says, no, you know, we think that banning travel from certain areas is discriminatory. Well, it might be, but when you look at the successes across the globe of countries that have closed their borders, like Australia and even eastern Canada, they took the decision to close the border against travelers, period, and they had the most success in containing the spread of the virus. So there are some pieces here that just aren't making sense. Well, in, in kind of overall, yeah. you know, and then to Charles's point around the three days for land travel, I, I kind of agree. I mean, if, if, you, if, if a person gets it, we're not going to identify it within the three days, and then I might think that they don't, that they're not contagious when, in fact, if they had the test a day or two later, they might find out that they are. And so I think that whether it's a blanket, no test is required if you're going for short periods of time, or whether we say for the next 14 days, um, even if you're coming back from the U.S. over a short period of travel on the second day of your return, you need to get a test. That, that's and, sort of uh, what Peter Uni was suggesting yesterday in terms of people coming from, uh, quote, countries of concern, that that there should be tests on arrival and another test seven days in or something. Um, you know, and what you're saying about the World Health Organization, to my mind, just when personally I was trying to think, okay, maybe they're all right, uh, they are showing that their political agenda trumps, you know, the, the, the health concerns. I frankly have very little confidence in them, and, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of uh, other people agree with me, John. I agree 100%. And I think that we've seen this, and, and some governments have, have actually called them out on that, it, even throughout the uh, early stages of the pandemic. But certainly we're seeing a lot more of the partisanship or the politics of who that I think is, is starting to hurt them and, and discredit them. And I think what the challenge is that we know, it, we always sort of mentioned about how, how Donald Trump, when he was president, was was a huge um um, uh, hater of, of who and, and, uh, uh, and what they stood for. And, and of course, that kind of always caused some people to say, well, maybe he's a bit too much on this. But, but yet there was always a bit of a kernel of, of, of truth that was happening in there. But more importantly, I think what we're seeing is other leaders um, uh, in other governments are starting to say the same thing. And I think what, what the challenge becomes, Libby, is that that when you start discrediting an organization like who, or not discrediting, but when it becomes discredited, then it gives more rise to people who are anti-vaxxers and, and conspiracy theorists to say that, well, you see, you know, the World Health Organization uh, is is political, and they're saying this kind of stuff. And it, and it gives more, uh, unfortunately, a little bit more wind in their sails in some, in some cases, because they can point to an organization like that and say, well, look what they're doing, look what they're saying. And that's always a problem, especially when we're trying to get a, a consistent message that everybody should be vaccinated, everybody should be doing and housing all the uh, the proper restrictions that need to happen in countries like us, Canada, should be doing what we're doing, which is shutting down for the sake of the safety of our people, uh, even if it might be inconvenient for other countries. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, There have been other voices other than Donald Trump. And for a lot of, uh, I would say, reasonable people, the fact that Donald Trump was against it didn't, you know, it 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 didn't help. But, but, you know, um, the head of the organization, Tadros, he has a checkered history as uh, health minister in Ethiopia. Uh, I think there's ample evidence that, you know, political considerations in favor of China. I don't know why there are no calls to get rid of that guy, frankly. 
Uh, I, you know, is I just whatever the politics, the politics of the UN as a whole. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Charles, do you have a thought on that? Oh, I know. Replace him with Fauci. <laughs> and uh, move on. I mean, the problem is... I'm not sure that's going to solve some problems. We gotta, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the lessons here... Uh, the, the health organization really doesn't have an answer for us in terms of this new mutation. They don't know how it's really spreading or how effective or how fast. Like, There's a lot of unanswered stuff, and that's scary for us. Um, It'll take a bit of time. They're on it. They're on it. They're yeah. on it. I mean, but what what we do know is this. In Canada, or in Ontario at least, 50% of those that are that are uh, getting COVID are unvaccinated. And uh, so just the vaccine and, and, the, and, the, and the notion of us getting inoculated is an important endeavor. And uh, and when you think of 50% of them were already about 80% or something like that is already uh, inoculated in Ontario, that's a huge number of cases that are happening for those that don't get vaccinated. I know we have one in 10 kids getting vaccinated now, which is good. But what does that really mean in regards to the Omicron and the new variants? I don't know. I well, don't we, know. we don't know. We're not getting direction as of yet. All we're being told is to take the precautions necessary. Right. I mean, the the scary thing about it from the point of view of the scientists is that, you know, when they look at that spike protein, there are a lot of mutations on it. Yeah. But what that means exactly, well, they need a little bit of time to sort it out. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is happening as we're heading into the holidays. People have plans to socialize more, uh, shop more. What is this going to mean for, you know, commerce? Well, and for travel, for and people that have been traveling for two years travel. that have, yeah. you know, have booked, have booked holiday time over Christmas. Uh, you know, it, again, it's, uh, it, it's a big question mark for many individuals. And, and what's interesting is uh, that the fact that the, federal government announced today that they were imposing um, back mandatory vaccine for air and rail travel, which most of us thought it had already been done. So I don't know, not exactly sure what the delay was, but it was a curiosity because a number of my friends have traveled around across Canada and out of the country, and no one asked them for their vaccine certificate. Yeah. They asked them for their COVID test, but not for their vaccine certificate. Oh, oh, well, wait. So I just came back from New York, and when I went, nobody asked for my rapid antigen test, which was very hard to get, by the way. Yeah. And no one asked for my vaccine certificate. Coming back into Canada, boy, they wanted everything. But, yeah. Um, yeah, going in there, no one asked. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it is a bit patchwork right now. And uh, so if nothing else, I think that the introduction of this variant will cause airlines, rail travel, and uh, airports, as it were, to to quickly implement the protocols that the Canadian public already believed were in place. Well, yeah, it's just they, they, they were giving some kind of grace period. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, well, I, and I think that, for good. Like, I think that it's a good thing that that grace period is now over and that people can confidently know that when they are on a plane, they are on a plane with fully vaccinated people. Uh, yeah, that's really important. So on to um, other things. Uh, we've got Barbados becoming a republic. And we, you know, we, we know that here in Canada, people think, you know, maybe it's time as well. I go ahead. Maybe as you say, I, I'm shocked at that. Uh, uh, you know, hearing sort of the survey numbers, I'm, I'm, I'm I should say shocked, but I'm surprised somewhat at the numbers being so high. Um, I do know, like, sort of, I'm a huge monarchist and have been, uh, but my whole life, all I've known is Queen Elizabeth and the wonderful mm-hmm. work that the Queen has done, and and uh, I just admired her and, and admired the uh, our, our system and and how we're made up as a country. Um, I do know, though, in, in talking to, to uh, you know, friends and, and, and others who are fellow monarchists and stuff, there, there seem to be over the course of the last little while of concerns with respect to how it's been handling the, the fact that a lot of the dirty laundry, so to speak, that's been airing from, from, the, from the royal family with Harry and what's happening there, it, it's increasingly given people a bit more of a, oh, you know what, the, the the shine the luster of, of Queen Elizabeth is is kind of fading and and as she unfortunately is getting more um, uh, frail 
uh, in some cases, although that's you know that's that's to be to be debated because she's still doing events. God bless her. But but I think though I, I'm now sort of realizing that people are not happy with the succession, which is obviously going to be Prince Charles, and 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 what comes with that. A lot of folks I'm hearing, and I'm sure you know Karen and, and Charles as well, saying, well, we should go right to Prince William. You know, forget about Charles. Maybe <laughs> we should skip that level and go to Prince William and and. Uh, and Kate and have them be the, the representatives and maybe that'll change the numbers. But I do worry that increasingly what we're seeing in the news and, and whatnot coming from Buckingham Palace and around is causing people to have a bit more of a, oh, I'm not sure, maybe we should be on our own or maybe we should be reflective or, or such monarchists. And that, that I think is, is what we're seeing in the numbers in the survey. Karen? Yeah, I think, um, again, it's context and how the question was asked. Because if you ask people, do you think the Queen or Prince Charles should be in our money? They'd probably say no. If you ask them, do you think we should overhaul our parliamentary democracy and change uh, the the Senate and the the representation of government (laughs) to a republic? I think you might get a different answer. (laughs) Well, I I think part of the issue for a lot of people, myself included, is is just that, uh, you know, it's perhaps not in the top 10 things that that really need our attention right now. that's it. And so when you ask a question like, do you like monarchy? Well, you know, I don't really know. I don't really have an opinion. But does that, I don't think that that necessarily translates into a major overhaul of our government and a major overhaul of how we view ourselves as part of the Commonwealth. And, you know, I, I don't know. Barbados is staying in the Commonwealth, by the way. Charles? Right. right. I mean, listen, I, I pledge allegiance to the Queen. I'm, I'm a member of Queen's Council. And it's a symbolic gesture. Even the Governor mm-hmm. General of Canada is a very symbolic issue. And I don't think many people really care. Um, they care less than they did before. But there are a lot of people, uh, maybe John being one. There's a sense of belonging, a sense of identity of who we are by being part of the Commonwealth. And I, too, must admit, I like the notion of these blue bloods, right? These are noble people of birth who are really? have a special identity. And I don't get why I'm not one of them. And I want to be one of them. I can't be. So that infuriates me. That infuriates a lot of people, I suspect. And, and uh, yeah, given, given the, the soap opera that is taking place, yeah. uh, you know, maybe there's been a little too much inbreeding. <laughs> maybe so. In fact, you know when that movie King Ralph came out, there's a guy I worked with in my office. He was number 98 in line to the throne. He was His Serene Highness, Harbin Zulainan. And that lineage is something that he took very seriously. And it wasn't just about the Queen of England. It's these royal families throughout Europe. They're all intertwined, and they all know where they're from. They all know uh, their ancestries. When uh, Prince Andrew came to town for an Empire Club, I believe it was, anniversary, I invited His Serene Highness to attend. And I'm a commoner in between these two princes, but they knew everything about one another just by their names. And it's fascinating to me. But what does it matter in terms of what we want to do as we yeah, go Yeah, but does it, does it mean anything to you? Is someone that we love, but it's going to be really difficult to maintain thereafter. Yeah, you know what? I mean, it, I have to say that, uh, you know, my heritage is, is Eastern European Jewish. It just doesn't really mean anything to me. And, and um, but it means a lot, I think, to especially people who are of British heritage. And, and one of the things that amused me endlessly is that, you know, on, on Christmas morning, my husband and his mother, when she was alive, like they'd get so excited that the Queen's message was coming on. <laughs> Just kind of look at them. <laughs> but, but I get, you know, that uh, in the same way that parts of my heritage are very important to me and, and to all of you, that, that this is important to uh, people of British heritage. Yes. Even though the yes. royal family is largely German. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but but I don't think there'll be a big change after the passing of the Queen. You know, there'll be rumblings maybe about who is next in line. But then, to your point, Libby, people have other things that they're really focused on, and I don't think it's going to take a lot of oxygen out of out of other things that are more important to be candid. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Roy in Cambridge. He's bringing us back to questions about COVID. Hi, Roy. How are you? Good. How are you? Fine, thanks. I'm asking that your news service set an example by re- by reporting the, the percentage of the uh, COVID virus. I think it was 3.25 yesterday. Oh, you mean the positivity rate. We do report those things. Uh, not I, I just rarely, a minute. I not- rarely actually... 
can you let me finish? Not in every newscast. And I know you're asking about the RT rate, the reproductive rate. So I did look it up for you for today. And Ontario's RT rate is 1.08. That's It's not good when it's above one. That's the rate at which uh, it replicates. Uh, that means that for every infection, there's more than one person getting infected. In Quebec, the RT rate is 1.14. And here in Ontario, 27 of 34 health units have an RT rate above one. Right. Okay, can you put it on your newscast? Okay, well, we, we, we do put various parts of it throughout the day. Thanks for your call, Roy. Okay, um, so we are back to COVID, and uh, let's see. I'm going to take one from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, hi, everyone. Um, Canadian taxpayers are p- spending so much money, especially when the royal visits visit for security, etc. Um, by now, we repay back them for joining us, the Canadian Army, to help fight against the U.S. and keep Canada in away. Um, yes, and we should get our independence after the Queen die. She represents the Crown so well, but moving forward, the children are not doing a good job. Okay, Sita. Thank you. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's what a lot of people think, but uh, I suspect Karen is right. And when uh, people start to see what's involved with that, uh, especially uh, a cons- the Constitution and, and getting everybody on side, they might kind of take a, bre- a breather. <laughs> Actually, and Libby, I, I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with Karen, despite my, my comments about sort of how people will view the succession part after after the, the Queen passes. But I do agree that the, the, the mess of the politics and, and sort of the reconstitution and all that stuff, I think, is, is a bit of a challenge. But I do think, though, as your caller suggested, uh, and also the fact that we've been so privy to all of these movies, The Crown and other, Diane and other movies over the course of the last little while, that people have a bit more of a, a clear picture or somewhat of a clear picture of what happens behind Buckingham Palace, that, that things are changing and their views towards the monarch is changing for sure. Uh, we don't have too much left uh, time left. I want to switch to the province now. And this whole issue of development, uh, you know, it seems clear that the Ford government is going to say, hey, uh, we are the party that's going to allow more housing to be built. Uh, and we're going to build highways. And on the other side of it, you know, they are overriding local planning authorities with these MZOs. Uh, so on the other side of it, the opposition says, well, they're just, uh, you know, doing things and abetting their developer friends to make more money and also their highway friends. So how do you see that issue? By the way, the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, has said that he will not use those MZOs if he's elected. Uh, Charles, how do you see that playing yeah, out? We, we only did, I believe, was one MZO or, uh, while we were there, and it was because of a warehouse property up in, uh, in Brampton. I can't recall the particulars, but in any event, it's very few. Um, I do know some of the people that have been doing these MZOs, and uh, they do it with council support, though. I mean, they require council to provide their agreement in respect to what they're doing. So this is a very um, vicious circle, because these MZOs and some of these developments are being preceded at many cases, and I'm involved in a number of them, where I'm going through an MCR process, which is a municipal comprehensive review, trying to go through the entire process, and these MZOs that are put in place are neglected from the discussion. They eat up all the oxygen when it comes to uh, attributing those residential allocations, and but they don't allow anybody to discuss it. So that's the problem. And, of course, the other issue is around environment. Um, so Highway 413 and the bypass is what they're promoting in a big way in this upcoming election. But people are saying, well, we have a 407 that's still being underutilized. We you know, put freight on there and find a way to make that work. Um, but there is a real discussion around the developers and the unions, frankly, because it's a lot of jobs, it's a lot of economic activity that comes from these injections. But there's a lot of other priorities that can be had, too. Um, so I suspect it's going to become an election issue. And, John, I'm not sure 
they got it right, because I'm not sure the public mood is yet to be seen in regards to expansion of sprawl when we have intensification issues and traffic issues right in our hometown that need to be resolved. Well, a couple of things there. So there are a lot of people who bring up this business about, uh, you know, better utilizing the 407. Also, the thing that came up is that the 407 was in violation of its contract and were they, the government could have pursued them for about a billion dollars in fines. These are people who, you know, uh, you know, they print money basically and, and the government didn't. Uh, uh, Karen, do you see that as, as something that's going to stick? Yeah, well, I think because people generally don't like the 407 anyway, unless you really need to use it to get somewhere. But generally speaking, people feel it's too expensive and doesn't really meet their needs. Um, so, But whether it sticks to the government, I don't know if it will. I don't know. But but I do think that the whole discussion about housing is an interesting one. Because living in Toronto, there are cranes are everywhere. Like we have more cranes than any city in North America, and yet we still talk about a housing shortage. But then when you, when you ask, well, who's buying these condos? They're investors. So buying, building more condos doesn't seem to translate into having more available housing. And so the government is now saying, well, we're going to actually request farmland so that we can build single-family homes because those are the homes that seem to be in demand. And so it's, something's not making sense. Well, and and, you sort of wonder, like, how, how is this happening? Uh, well, I, I, you know, and it's interesting. I was talking to a, a staffer for the municipal affairs minister, and the, you know, that person was saying, you know, we're 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 the party about available and affordable housing, but those single family homes, you know, most people can't afford them, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if they're out out in the burbs there. And so, it's it's the whole housing strategy. I think needs to be better articulated. Because, the, you know, the Liberals ran on a platform. They're going to make it easier for people to get money to buy homes that are overpriced anyway. And yet the city is issuing condo permits and condos are being built left, right and center, particularly around the center of the city. And yet there still seems to be a housing shortage. So well, up. well, yeah, and the numbers show that most people, most of the, most of those places that are being bought are being bought, as you said, by people who own multiple units, not not by people who are desperate to get into something, you know. And and the fact is that it's really unaffordable for most people. Uh, John, do you think that the the government's messaging that they're the party of housing and and highways is that going to be good for them? Well, I think they're certainly banking on it. I think they're realizing that, obviously, with congestion and, and what we're seeing now, with less less people using transit and more people getting in their cars and, and the highways getting back to being congested, I think they're seeing that there's going to be a need for highways, especially, you know, planning it 10, 20, 15 years down the road, as opposed to doing it for right now. But I also think that these MZOs, as much as, as they might be uh, controversial in some ways, are absolutely needed in, in some ways because... A lot of the municipalities go to the government saying we need to make sure that we can we can get some some long term beds and some housing being built. So there's a need for that to happen. Whether or not it becomes a political issue, and whether or not voters are going to focus on what an MZO is, if they see houses being built and long term care facilities being built, I think they're going to sort of be much more favorable towards that than, than whether or not an MZO was used properly or not. Okay, well, uh, uh, I don't know about that. Uh, I'm looking at the time. I'm over time, so I've got to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thank Thanks, you. Good afternoon, Thanks. everyone. Okay, we will talk again next week. And right now we're going to take a break and coming up a very special segment of Fight Back. Uh, Zuma Radio is very proud to be participating in a, a radiothon to support the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. We're going to be talking about that when we come back. And in the meantime, if you want to show your support, just go to zoomerradiothon.ca and you can make a donation that way. But we'll be talking about the nuts and bolts when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. One in two. Think about that number for a moment. One in two Canadians will get cancer in their lifetime. One in four 
will die of it. And that's why Zoomer Radio is proud to spend this Giving Tuesday broadcasting in support of the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And the Princess Margaret Cancer Center is a world leader in cancer research and treatment. It's especially meaningful for me because the innovative treatment that I received at the Princess Margaret 13 years ago saved my life after I was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. It's a disease and a stage of that disease that is still extremely deadly, but a bit less so than when I started at the Princess Margaret. Now, my case also led to improvements for other patients because they are always learning and finding new innovations. So, um, this is also extremely important right at this time because we're emerging, hopefully, from COVID. And this morning I saw yet another study showing that thousands of Canadians died because of delayed surgeries and other treatments, and delayed screening is resulting in later stage and more difficult-to-treat cancers. So I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to hear if you've had any experience of this, or maybe you've had an experience at the PMCC yourself or a loved one. Give us a call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Aaron Schimmer, who is the director of the Research Institute at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. He is a physician in hematology oncology, and Bruce Carr, who is a volunteer with the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Hi, Libby. Thanks very much for the opportunity, and hi, Dr. Schimmer. Okay, well, Bruce, let's begin with you, because, you know, we do talk to doctors and to patients pretty often, but it's pretty rare to talk to a volunteer. So what is it that you do, and why? Well, um, what I do, Libby, is my official name um, or of my position is a navigator. So what I essentially do with fellow volunteers is we greet patients and their caregivers and their friends and family as they come into the center. We answer any questions they might have. We also provide whatever support and guidance they need as they as they go on routes to the various clinics that they need to visit. But also, and probably most importantly, Libby, we provide a listening ear. Um, as many people can relate to, uh, many of the patients are understandably concerned, anxious, and confused. So it's it's always important that we to listen to their needs and address them accordingly. And also, volunteers at the uh, PMCC are one of the first people patients uh, meet. So it's really important that we create a positive and friendly environment when they arrive at the center. And you also asked why. Why am I a volunteer? Well, unfortunately, many years ago, my mom was at uh, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, as well as uh, more recently, three very close friends. So I had the chance to not only provide them with with support and serve as their caregiver, but I was also able to see the extraordinary support that they received from the staff at uh, Princess Margaret. So in addition, so I thought, how can I reciprocate? How can I thank the, the Princess Margaret? So in addition to financially supporting them, I thought, hey, why don't I donate my time? So I've been a volunteer for four years now. I volunteer approximately eight hours a week. And finally, and last but not least, um, why I volunteer is so I can support and help the patients and the caregivers and the family and friends um, in any way I can during these uh, challenging times. And, and you know what? Um, my experience is the volunteers were really friendly. And also, you know, sometimes, especially if you're worried or upset or stressed out, you know, even if you're close with friends and family, you know, they're just as stressed out as, as you are, and you don't really want to put any more on them. Yeah. So having somebody that's a little distant that you know will understand uh, and wants to hear it, uh, it, it just, you know, makes things better. 
Yeah, it, it certainly does, and and this is why you know at times we will, you know, we'll have quiet conversations, whether it be one on one or with her fam- family, family and friends, and so on, and just try to set them at ease, set their minds at ease as they're as they're navigating a challenging time. So whatever we can do to assist, um, it's 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 a great opportunity and, and very fulfilling at the end of the day. Dr. Aaron Schimmer, let's uh, bring you in. It's been uh, an especially challenging time with COVID. I know that the Princess Margaret has kept up with certainly with situations that are deemed to be an emergency. But um, how has, you know, the backlog affected you and your colleagues? So so there have been impacts on many levels, and as you've alluded to, that there was a period of time where clinical activity for for anything but the most urgent of cases, and some aspects of cancer, if you can believe it, were not classified as the most urgent, had to be delayed due to the pandemic. We had to ensure that there were sufficient ICU and hospital beds available for their care. But as we've been able to get a better handle on the virus, understand it better, that we're able now to reopen. But as you alluded to, that produces a significant backlog of cases. We need to catch up. People shouldn't be waiting or shouldn't have to wait for the time that they have. And we need to not only deal with the new cases, but again, the backlog. But one of the things I I touch on relates to maybe also what Bruce is saying, what you've discussed, is that the other effect of COVID has just been that visitors and family members can't accompany patients to their visit. That's been a huge impact of COVID, maybe one that's not talked about. And so the importance of our staff, that team that's with you, including the tremendous volunteers like Bruce, is just so important, especially in these continued difficult times. Yeah, I was even wondering if if uh, volunteers were, were still there during COVID. I would imagine maybe not for the whole period. Exactly. During the initial peak of the pandemic and parts of the seconds and third waves, you know, volunteers, you know, we couldn't accommodate them as we tried again to limit to the absolute essential number of people in the building. And so, you know, volunteers were not permitted. But fortunately, we've been able to reintroduce the volunteers because, again, as Bruce mentioned, they're such an essential part of our team. And now, especially more than ever, given that patients are needing often to come alone to their appointments, but we have at Princess Margaret's a, a, really a team that looks after people when they come, the great doctors, the great nurses, the allied health professionals, and, of course, the volunteers. But not to forget, you know, the people in that team that you don't see, which is all the scientists working tirelessly away through the pandemic, I might add, working on those next big breakthroughs, because that's what's really going to make a difference for our patients here at Princess Margaret, across Canada, around the, the world, not just tomorrow and next week, but in the years to come. Well, I know that the biggest probably innovation of the last number of years is immunotherapy and uh, immunotherapy. It, it harnesses your immune system. It's, it's a drug um, and it, it's different drugs and some work for some types of cancer and not for others and for some people and not for others. Uh, in the last couple of years, what would you say the biggest advances in immunotherapy are? So I think in the last few years, so by the way, immune therapy comes in many different flavors. There are pills that can reprogram the immune system. There are antibodies that one can give that, again, alter the immune system. And one can give cellular therapy. Actual cells have been genetically modified and engineered to seek out and destroy the cancer cells. I think some of the biggest advances have been in that area of being able to improve, refine the genetically modified immune cells, either from an individual patient or theoretically we're moving to uh, other sort of non-patient sources of these cells, again, that can be infused. And when infused into a patient, they identify, seek out, and destroy those residual pockets of disease that can often be uh, responsible for disease relapse. So significant breakthroughs there. Another big area is drugs that we thought were working on cancer cells just simply by killing the cancer cell. We're now understanding more and more that some of these uh, chemotherapy drugs are actually stimulating immune responses against the uh, cancer cells. So as you noted, lots of exciting things happening. So just a minute, chemotherapy drugs, not immunotherapy drugs, stimulating immune responses. Right. So a drug like azacitidine, which had been used to alter the expression of genetic material in the cancer cell, worked by some of our scientists at the Princess Margaret, showed that the drug actually makes this 
cancer cell look like it's infected with the virus and allows the immune cells to attack it. Work by Dr. Shane Harding, again at Princess Margaret, showing it's radiotherapy. People often don't think of radiation therapy as being an immune stimulant. Actually, again, through a similar mechanism, can make those cancer cells look like they're infected by virus and make them susceptible to attack by the immune cells. So drugs that, of course, no one ever thought were working through this mechanism actually have mechanisms related to immune therapy. Very exciting stuff. Okay, we have got to take a break. Now, we're asking you, audience, to show your support and generosity by donating to donate to the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And remember that number, one and two. Uh, go to Zoomer Radiothon. That's Zoomer, R-A-D-I-O-T-H-O-N dot C-A, or call, and get it, get an, uh, uh, write this down, one 888 388-3308. Once again, 1-888-388-3308. And that is to make your donation right now. You'll get a tax receipt emailed to you right away. And any donation over a hundred bucks will get you a limited edition Princess Margaret picture frame. I am looking forward to getting one of those. Right now, we're taking a break, and we will be back with more from our volunteers and researchers at the Princess Margaret. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And uh, we are supporting the Zoomer Radiothon in support of the Princess Margaret here. And to do that, joining me, we have Dr. Aaron Schimmer, who's the director of the Research Institute at the Princess Margaret, and Bruce Carr, who is a volunteer with the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. Now, we'd also like to hear from you, your stories of the Princess Margaret, or if you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Bruce Carr, uh, Dr. Shimmer, was pointing out that uh, at this point, a lot of people have to still come to their appointments alone. Uh, so what kind of a difference have you noticed in your work because of that? Yeah, that's, that's a good point that uh, Dr. Shimmer brought up. A lot of people are alone. A lot of people are, are elderly. A lot of people are first-timers at these centers. So, understandably, they need assistance. And if they can't have a caregiver or a family friend with them, we make that extra effort to ensure that we greet them at the door. They go through a screening process, of course, before entering the center. Once that takes place, we then greet them. And if need be, we'll escort them to their to their respective clinic. Um, if they've been there before, we just want to uh, uh, confirm with them that they're comfortable with where they're going. If they have any questions, if they need to, um, if there are any anything that we can point out in terms of where they might be able to get a cup, cup of coffee, where the washrooms are, etc. So what we, we try to accommodate them as much as possible. And as I said, if they're individuals that have been there numerous times, um, we just have a small chat with them as we uh, you know, take them to the elevators to escort them to the clinics. We One favorite question is, hey, uh, that I ask is, hey, where are you from? People always love to share where they're from, whether it be greater Toronto area, whether it be outside, you know, within the four corners of our province or across the country. It's always wonderful to speak to our to our patients and just have small ch- small talk with them until such time that they have to go to their respective clinics. And the small talk, does that kind of... Uh open the floodgates? Um, no, not really. Not as much as I thought it would in the beginning. Um, no, we, we we don't let the floodgates open. I mean, we have to control the conversation to a degree. Um, people are, are usually in a rush. They've had to put up with Toronto traffic, so oh. they're, they're anxious to get to their clinics. So, um yeah, we we have to be sensitive, but at the same time uh, and respect what they're what they're saying. But I wouldn't necessarily say the floodgates open, and, uh, and if they do, we would find an appropriate place to sit and chat with them. Okay, let us go to Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. I just, um, you know what? I guess you've given me an opportunity over the years to voice opinions, so I'm paying it back. I just donated. 
Um, but other than that, it, uh, it has a personal memories for me, Princess Margaret, because they weren't the happy ones that everybody has, but it was a, a tough one. My dad passed away at Princess Margaret at the age of 47. Oh, dear. Uh, leaving my mother a widow with five kids to raise. Wow. So, but um, that was quite some time ago. And Christmas time for our family is a bittersweet one because Princess Margaret sent him home for his last Christmas. So we have pictures of that. And then he passed away in March. But you know what? I still, it, it's just, it, it's one of those things, you know, that I, I'm glad that you guys are doing this thing. I think it's just awesome. Okay, and, and thank you for making a donation. That is much appreciated. Well, it's not an, it's not an awful lot, but I'm a senior now trying to trying to get by on what I can, so you can appreciate that. So the food bank gets a donation from a uh, cash donation from me every winter as well. So, Well, Ron, I think everything that you can do is much appreciated. Don't, don't uh, undersell it. Um, and we appreciate your call. Thanks for that. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Uh, and uh, Dr. Shimmer, I mean, it's one thing that the uh, gratitude and appreciation that, that people feel, it lasts for a very long time. Well, absolutely. I think, you know, as, as Ron alluded to, that we celebrate the successes, we celebrate the breakthroughs that we have, but what gets us up... Hello? Dr. Shimmer? Oh, so, oh, sorry about that. Uh, so, 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 you know, we, we celebrate the successes and the breakthroughs that we have, but at the same point, we know that there's still a lot more work to, done it, to be done, and Ron's story highlights that, that there are still too many people where the outcomes are not what we want. We need to understand cancer better as, as the initial step, and we need to translate that improved understanding into better diagnostics and better therapeutics. And we're making progress, but it, for sure it can't come quick enough. And and Bruce Carr, um, again, uh, you know, I think there have even been studies that after it, people have been treated for cancer, and especially if they've been treated successfully, the, the, the gratitude that they feel lasts for a very long time. And, and even when the outcome wasn't what you would have hoped for, you know, the care that people get is such good care that it, you know, it stays with them. It, it does indeed, Libby. Um, we've had people that have returned to the center years later, and they always say, you know, I remember when, and thank you so much. And um, it's wonderful having conversations with these individuals, and and they are they are so sincerely thankful for what the staff and volunteers have provided at at, uh, at the center, um, and. Uh, yeah, and whether they're longtime patients who are returning or, or current patients, everyone we're thanked profusely on a regular basis. And I don't, I as a volunteer, don't expect to be thanked, particularly by someone who's, you know, challenged with with having to deal with cancer and so on. But they they always go out of their way to say how much they appreciate the center, and how much they appreciate the volunteers, and obviously the staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Shimmer, I mean, you're in the research institute. Uh, I guess you don't have too much contact with patients on a daily basis. So, so I do personally, given yeah. my role as a physician, I, I treat leukemia. Uh, but you're, you're right that our scientists, I would say, work behind the scenes. They're part of that care team that you actually don't see on a daily basis. But but I think by being in the hospital, by being part of Princess Margaret Cancer Center, they feel that they are with the patients. And again, it may not be a group that you see every day, but their work is dedicated to improving the outcomes for our patients. And again, part of that team that you don't see all the time. And uh, do you uh, do you end up seeing patients for a very long time, you know, for follow-ups, or uh, are they cured and that's it? So I've followed patients who I've had in my practice since I started at the Princess Market on my first day. Those are, of course, are tremendous success stories in the area of acute leukemia. I wish all the outcomes were like that for all of our patients. You know, sadly, they're not. But I follow my patients for an extended period of time, you know, often just because of travel distances or whatnot, and patients who've had excellent outcomes, we can return the care to their local community or family doctors, but many want to continue coming back, maybe for some of the uh, reasons that, that Bruce and you have talked about, and we're always happy to provide care. We're always going to be part of their circle of care. 
Okay, you know, I have to tell you, um, even if I could have my care returned to my family doctor, who uh, I'm very fond of, no way, I'm not giving up my uh, follow-ups at Princess Margaret. The only thing I'm worried about is, uh, you know, what happens. Uh, One one of um, my two doctors uh, ended up, uh, you know, uh, leaving town. I think he's back. But what happens when they retire? Well, look, that's that's the great thing, which I tell my patients, that they are going to be, you know, here till 120 years of age, and after I retire, there'll be another leukemia specialist that'll look after them, right? And and that's, I think that's the goal that we want for all of our patients. No, 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 you can't retire, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Exactly. well, look, you know, I, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, but, uh, you know, we, we want our patients to outlive and outlast all of our physicians. So, Dr. Shimmer, in the uh, we have very little time left. Um, what's next on the horizon? What are you really excited about studying right now? Oh, I think there's so much happening with the Princess Margaret. We've got 300 physicians and scientists engaged in breakthroughs. I could take the rest of your show, but I'm going to give you just one example. Dr. Catherine O'Brien, a great surgeon scientist at our institute, recently discovered that colon cancer cells can resist chemotherapy by hibernating, sort of similar to what bears would do in the winter. This has been a groundbreaking discovery, changed the way we think about how cancer cells can resist chemotherapy, and she's also discovered new strategies that can wake those hibernating bears up and zap them and get rid of those persisting cells. So very exciting work. fundamental discovery that's going to have major impact, I think, on the patients in the near future. Oh, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing a show on colon cancer next week. So if, if we could get something in writing on that, that is very helpful to my research. Absolutely. You want to have Dr. O'Brien on your show. She's a world leader in the field. Okay. And, um, uh, before we wrap things up, Bruce Carr, what, what would you like to leave us with? Um, there are a couple of things, Libby. Um, first and foremost, um, anyone can volunteer as long as you're over 16 years of age. We have university students. We have people who are retired. We have professionals that work part-time and full-time. They volunteer. If anyone's interested in volunteering, all they need to do is go into Google and type in UHN volunteer, and there's reams and reams of information available for them to look at. And also, it's not just volunteering at the hospital. The Princess Margaret Foundation has some wonderful initiatives throughout the year. Your listeners are probably aware of the Ride to Conquer Cancer, which takes place in June. They're probably aware of the Weekend End Cancers, which takes place in September. September. So if people can't dedicate, you know, X number of hours a week, similar to what I do, they can certainly dedicate a weekend here, a weekend there throughout the year and help with the Princess Market Foundation initiatives. Okay. And what they can do right now today is to go to zoomerradiothon.ca or call 1-888-388-3308. Repeating that number, 1-888-388-3308 to make your donation right now. It is going to a really good cause. Uh, and that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Aaron Shimmer and Bruce Carr. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Okay. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.